And this morning is going to be a little different. Uh, we're going to take a break from the verse-by-verse verse going through Philippians, and this is going to be more of a topical message. It's still exegetical. It's not. Uh, we're just not going to dissect one passage and really uh, look closely at that one passage. We're going to seek out what the Bible tells us about being part of a body. And another beautiful providence uh, is that today we get to celebrate being part of the body of Christ around the Lord's table shortly after. So uh, just the way it worked out. Nobody planned that. (laughs) That's just the way it uh, came about. It's amazing and it's beautiful. I want to recognize that. But we are going to have a passage that we're going to use kind of as our jumping off point. So if you would stand with me, I'm going to read from Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, I'm just going to read the first three verses there. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God for consider him who endured such hostility by sinners for against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart you may be seated God bless the reading of his word when I was reading those verses just now Uh, What did you picture in your mind, especially when you heard the word us, the pronoun us, running, let us run? Were you maybe picturing all of us, all your brothers and sisters at a race, and maybe we got our our numbers on, right? Maybe we even have the same t-shirts on or something, the Team Jesus shirts or something, right? And we're all together running the race. That's not a bad way to look at it necessarily because uh, the church is also called, uh, we're also called to be soldiers, right? And to fight together side by side and those kind of things. So that's not a, a bad way necessarily to look at it. But this morning, I would like for you to picture it in this way. That we are a body. We are one body. Remember what I just read in Psalm 139. The church is described in the scriptures as a body. And like our physical bodies, this body has many different parts and systems, all that need to be working at peak performance and working together for the body to compete in a race. And like our physical bodies, this body has been perfectly designed and knit together by God. Right? So really all those things that I read about God knowing us individually and our inward parts and all those things and knitting us together in our mother's womb, this body has been knit together by God also, purposely and sovereignly. A.W. Pink has a quote from, or this is a quote from his commentary on Hebrews, and he talks about this phrase, let us. 
Let us, this is mentioned as an incentive to console and assure us that we are not alone. As we look around at the empty profession on every side and behold the looseness and laxity of so many who bear the name of Christ, Satan seeks to make us believe that we are wrong, too strict, and rebukes us for our singularity. No doubt he employed the same tactics with Noah, with Abraham, and with Moses. There he's referring back to chapter 11. But they heeded him not, nor should we. We are not singular. Has anyone this last year been made to feel narrow-minded or unloving because you bear the name of Christ? How have people reacted when you told them that you're attending church? Gathering twice a week sometimes. Sometimes more than twice a week you're gathering with people. Have you avoided telling people that you've been gathering because you know how they'll react? For an entire year now, we have been told that we need to be singular. And it appears that the author of Hebrews has a different idea when he says, let us run. This passage before us is going to be our anchor this morning, but instead of dissecting these verses word by word, we're going to take this idea of running the race together and hold it to the light of the rest of Scripture. And in doing so, I'm hoping also, it's kind of a two-part thing here, I'm hoping that I can demonstrate to you a technique that all of us can use to test any subject with the Word of God. So it's going to be our outline for this morning. There's four questions that we're going to ask, and we probably should ask about everything in the Christian life. In fact, I'm going to show you this. This is the book that's no longer in print. That's Richard Baxter on the cover there. He lived from 1615 to 1691. And this book, A Christian Directory, is basically doing what we're doing this morning, but he did for many, many other subjects. <laughs> okay? John MacArthur says this, No Puritan work has ever approached the popularity, the scope, or the depth of Baxter's, Baxter's classic treatise on applied theology. Okay? So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to take the Word of God, and we're going to take this phrase, let us, and we're going to try and apply that and see what that really looks like and what it really means. So no one... Uh, where was I at? <laughs> With widespread interest in counseling... Oh... No Puritan work has ever approached the popularity, the scope, or the depth of Baxter's classic treatise on applied theology. With the widespread interest in counseling in today's church, this reprint of Baxter's work should be a welcomed addition to every library and to anyone who wishes to give solid biblical answers to man's questions. Okay? So anyway, thinking biblically, asking questions, that's what we're going to do this morning. The outline's going to look like this. Four questions. <clears throat> and these are the way, the way they're phrased here. You could ask them about anything, right? How did God design it to work? Are there patterns in Scripture that show us what happens when people follow the design and when they don't? And the idea of a pattern means there needs to be more than one, right? It should be repeated. The idea of a pattern is it repeats itself throughout the Word of God. And then are there principles in Scripture that tell us what is the wise or good way to do something and what is the unwise or bad way to do something? Did Abby correct my spell? Oh, thank you, Abby. 
<laughs> and then, is there something commanded in Scripture? Is it a sin to do something or to not do something? So we're going to take our phrase from Hebrews, let us run the race with endurance, the race that is set before us. And we're going to filter that through our questions. And this is by no means going to be an exhaustive look at these questions, and we'll probably have some overlap, like there may be a principle, and then followed by a pattern, or you know, there may be a little bit of overlap here and there. But I think you'll see it, and you'll get the idea as we go. You know, we could take a closer look at what is the race, when it says to let us run the race, or what it means to run with endurance, or what a comfort it is that the race is set before us. Scripture so rich and deep and beautiful, but this morning we're just going to focus on the plurality and what it means to run together. So our first question could be something like this. Is it God's design that we run together? Or did God design us to run together? So get your Bibles ready because we're going to go to a bunch of different passages and I would like for you to turn to them and see them yourself too. So design. What was God's design? We'll start at the beginning, right? Lots of things were designed at creation and revealed to us through creation. All different kinds of design. So Genesis chapter 2 verse 18 says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. So we see from the very beginning, God says it was not good for the man to be alone. Everything to that point was good, right? We know from verse 31, if you look over just at the very end of chapter 1, verse 31, God saw all that he made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and morning the sixth day. But then we see in verse 18 of chapter 2 that it's not good for the man to be alone. That's part of God's design. Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. We know the context there, right? After the flood, people all were together, and they started building a big city, right? And I'm going to read 6 through 9. The Lord said, Behold, they are one people. They all have the same language. And this is what they begin to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth and and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because the Lord confused the language of the whole earth and from there, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. Now, this seems like the opposite, right? Like God's pushing people away, right? But what I want you to gather from here is it says, Behold, they're one people and they have the same language. Nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. So when humans work together, they can accomplish a lot. Now, when they have sin and are into the picture, right, we have a whole other problem, right? Just like right now, a one-world government, probably not a good idea, right? Because we have sinful leaders and sinful things. But the idea is that people were designed to be and work together. 
What about Nehemiah? Turn to Nehemiah chapter 1. This, we know the context here too, right? He's, they've just come out of exile, right? Back, back to Jerusalem. Verse 8 and 9 says, Remember the word, this is Nehemiah speaking to the Lord. Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the people. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote part of the heavens, I will gather them from there and will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. So we start to see an idea here that if they're unfaithful, God will scatter them. But if they obey, He'll gather them. And then in 10.11, He says, They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name and to make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. He's saying, or we see that if they're unfaithful, he'll scatter. But if they keep God's commandments, he'll gather them. And then Nehemiah begs him, please, I beseech you, we'll obey. Please gather us, gather us back together. So the idea here is that the design is humans together, when they're following God, is a blessing. Humans scattered is a curse. God's people, when they're scattered, is a curse. And then we see the design in the very end, too, right? Revelation chapter 19. Verses 6 and 7. This is a beautiful picture into heaven. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. That's the culmination of the design, right? A great multitude praising God together. We were designed to be together from beginning to the end of the Bible. And really, there is no end. There's an end where we're biblically from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, we're designed to be together. But we're designed to be together forever. Amen? Amen. How about patterns? See if we can find some patterns in Scripture. Go ahead and turn to turn back to Nehemiah. Just turn to chapter six. I'm not going to read all uh, three of those chapters to you. <laughs> but we end, I, I put those up there because of the context of it. If you read those three chapters, starting in chapter three, that. Um, 
they're working. There's a whole, the whole, all of chapter three lists. This family did this part of the wall, and this family did this part of the wall. It goes on and on and on for the entire chapter and tells all who's doing what, right? So there's this idea of all these different people working on the wall out in front of their house. And then if you go through chapter four and chapter five and chapter six, it shows that it was difficult. And that's where we get the, uh, the term the sword and the trowel. Have you heard that term? It was uh, Spurgeon's magazine, his publication that he put out in England back in the middle of the 19th century was called The Sword and the Trowel. And the idea was they're masonry with one hand and fighting off people with the other hand, right? That's how, how difficult and drastic it was. But everyone worked together and everyone did their job out in front of their place. And... <clears throat> Verse 16 says, When all our enemies heard of it, and all the nations surrounded us, they lost their confidence, for they recognized that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Could Nehemiah have done completed the wall by himself? No. Right? Could God have completed the wall by himself? Yeah, absolutely. But it appears from here that he wants his people to work together, right? Like maybe God's given us a pattern here that that's what he desires is for his people to work together. So much so that the outside people noticed it and said it's their God that's helping them, but they saw their hard work as well. What about in Exodus? Where Moses and Israel and the Amalekites in Exodus chapter 17 so they've left they've left Israel or left Egypt right they're wandering in the wilderness and there's these Amalekites that want to come attack them and verse 8 this is really a beautiful passage verse 8 then Amalek came and fought against Israel at Rephidim so Moses said to Joshua choose men for us and go out and fight against Amalek tomorrow I will station myself on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand Joshua did as Moses told him he fought against Amalek and Moses and Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill so it came about when Moses held his hand up that Israel prevailed and when he let his hand down Amalek prevailed but Moses' hands were heavy and they took a stone and they put it under him and they sat him on it and Aaron and Hur supported his hands one on one side and one on the other thus his hands were steady until the sun set so Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and and his people with the edge of the sword could God have wiped out Amalek like he did with Pharaoh just a little bit before, right? The sea was open. Pharaoh and his army went in. God closed it. Done. What about Korah? You guys remember Korah in Numbers 16? God opened up the earth, swallowed Korah and all his people and all their belongings, and then covered it up like they were never there. So God could have done that with Amalek. Why would he have Moses go stand up on a hill and have Aaron and her hold his arms up while they were having a battle? I think maybe that's showing us a pattern of what God wants us to do. God wants us to be there. We need each other, and he wants us to be there for each other. What about in the New Testament? Is there New Testament patterns? Do they continue through the New Testament? What about Jesus? How many disciples did Jesus have? Luke chapter 6, 12 and 13 says he chose 12 disciples out of many. 
Why didn't he choose just one disciple? Why did he choose any disciples? Right? He didn't need any help. Right? Jesus didn't need any help in his ministry. How many people are running around today that claim to be individual disciples of Christ? Right? And even if they don't say it, how are they living their lives? What about at the beginning of the church? Let's turn to Acts. Turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, 42 to 44. They were, this is right at Pentecost, right? A bunch of people are saved after Peter preaches. And then in 42 it says, They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. That's the beginning of the church. What about Paul as his missionary journey, as he went through the great preacher Paul, right? Just went around by himself and didn't need any help. Colossians chapter, or sorry, Second Corinthians, Second Corinthians chapter seven, verses five through seven. <clears throat> Is Paul speaking to the Corinthians? For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no... First of all, you got to look at we, right? For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side. Conflicts without, fears within. But God, what a beautiful phrase, right? But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Wow. How does he comfort the depressed? By the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also the comfort with which he was comforted in you as he reported to us your longing and mourning, your zeal for me, so that I'd rejoiced even more. And we just heard from Guga, right, in Philippians chapter 2, Paul talking about Timothy and Epaphroditus and using words like brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier, kindred spirits, right? So Paul, the beginning of the church and through Paul, we see a pattern of God's people being and working and living and fellowshipping, breaking bread together. So there appears to be a pattern. And again, I said this isn't exhaustive. You'll see as you go through the scriptures, you'll start to see more. What about principles? What about principles? The wisdom literature, you see the first there are Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. The wisdom literature is, is loaded with biblical principles. Basically, the book of Proverbs is a big book of principles, right? 31 chapters. It tells you how things are good or bad or wise or unwise. But Proverbs 18, Proverbs 18, verse 1. It's a good one. This is... Um, 
uh, John MacArthur has these little uh, packs you can buy of basically three by five cards that have verses on them and things, and they call them fighter verses. Has anyone ever heard of that out of Bethlehem? They have little fighter verses or verses that you can memorize um, that can help you. Uh, the idea is we used to call them Rima Rima verses at another church I was at um, from the uh, armor of God, right? We have the armor of God, the sword, which is the word of God, is our only offensive weapon against Satan and the flesh and the devil. And if we have these verses memorized, we can pull them up when we need to. For instance, there's a passage in Job that says, I shall not allow my eyes to look upon a maiden. Right? Short verse, I can cut, stop it. Right? So this is a good one too, like on Wednesday night, when I've been working hard all day, and I'm exhausted, and I've confessed, some of us have talked about it, we've confessed that Wednesday nights are tough. And now we're way out at Aldersgate. If it wasn't there, it'd be tough (laughs) for me. (laughs) I have no excuse. But... This is a good one for those times, right? He who separates himself seeks his own desire. He quarrels against all sound wisdom. Okay? That's a pretty clear principle. It's telling you, if you separate yourself, we know why. It's because I'm tired. I don't feel like going. I don't want to be around them. I want some me time. Right? It's my own desires. And it quarrels against sound wisdom because we're showing us right here the way God wants it to be. Right? So that's a good one to memorize and to keep in your in your sword sheath. Right? What about Ecclesiastes chapter 4? This is a very clear one too. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, <clears throat> 11 through 16. Nine through twelve, sorry. (laughs) Ecclesiastes four nine through twelve. Two are better than one, because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there's not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. So two is better than one. Three is even better, right? Is that kind of what it says? And it's... What about the principle of our body? The body as a, a church, as a body. Is that a principle that's taught in Scripture? Let's look at Ephesians chapter 4. You guys are probably ahead of me, right? Ephesians chapter 4, 11 through 16. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure and stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceit. 
deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body is fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causing the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So that kind of fits in with our what we talked about this morning, right? In, in Psalm 139, it's even explaining it there. Every joint, the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body. And think about that. Is that church growth numerically? Right? Like more appendages? Is that what we mean? <laughs> That's a church growing together, right? And not to say that God doesn't bring people. God brings in who He wants to bring in and people leave. But the idea is a body not just getting massive amounts of people to this right here. And that's how a church grows biblically. Okay? What about 1 Corinthians chapter 12? Oops. You guys remember sword drills? You guys, old, anybody old enough to remember those? You used to hold your Bible up in the air and get the passage and I got it. And you read it. I should maybe be doing that. Keep everybody awake. All right, Corinthians, Second Corinthians, chapter seven. First Corinthians, chapter twelve. First Corinthians, chapter twelve. Oh boy. Uh, 12 through 14. For even as the body is one and yet has many members, all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body. So also is Christ. For by one Spirit we are all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. And we're going to talk more a little bit about this principle more later on. But I think our idea is of running as one body, I think we can see that in the scriptures, right? What about commands? Commands. And... Uh, you can go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter three, but so we don't uh, so we don't get in a muddy water here. I'm just going to deal with commands in the New Testament, right? Because we could talk about the Sabbath, Sabbath laws. We could talk about the fourth commandment, um, etc. And there's definitely more patterns and principles in the law and the Torah. But uh, today we're going to focus on the New Covenant commands. Okay. Hebrews chapter 3, 12 and 13. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any, in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So we're to encourage one another day after day. And I want to point out that this was written before texting. Right? That's a nice tool that we have. And, and we use it and it's fun. But when it says encourage one another day after day, 
it's probably a little closer proximity than that. Okay? What about in, uh, in chapter 10? Right? This is one that has been bantered around quite a bit in the last year. Chapter 10, verses 23, 24, and 25. Let us hold, let us, there it is again, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Like I said, this is the one that's been contrasted with Romans 13, right, where we're called to obey our leaders, our authorities. So it's been back and forth quite a bit. We've seen all different churches and how different people are reacting to this and doing it. But what are our commands? Are these commands absolute in Romans 13 or Hebrews 10? Do they contradict each other? How do we apply them? This is what we've been going through for the last year or so. But this is also why we need to cast a wider scriptural net over some of these issues and see what the rest of the Bible says about it. So that's where our questions we're using today can be helpful in our studies, right? If we continue to look at these issues biblically and go through some of these questions, whether it's on marriage or worship or gathering or not gathering or all these different things, we need to look at them more biblically. So let's, let's keep going. Let's keep our, our net widening a little bit here and look at this scriptural idea, biblical idea of being together, running together. John chapter 13. The words of our Savior. John thirteen, thirty four, and thirty five. Pretty straightforward here. The words of Jesus. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Why'd I switch to, to love here, to working together, to being together, right? We're commanded to love each other. And we know from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, right, uh, uh, the, the love passage, love is patient, love is kind, the one that you see, uh, that, that we, we know that that's not just wedding or Pinterest fodder, right, that saying that those verses, we actually know from the context that that's talking about the church and the love that the church is supposed to have for each other, right? Because we just read, weren't we just reading in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 where the explanation of the body and how the body's fitted together and working together, and then in 13 we have love and what the love of the body is supposed to look like. And of course that has, because it's a covenant relationship, we're in covenant relationship, and a marriage is a covenant relationship, there's obviously some, some overlap and that can be used there, so it's not wrong to use it for that, but the primary purpose of that passage is talking about the church. Agape love. Covenantal love. What about Ephesians? Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 5. 
which also goes, if you continue in Ephesians chapter 5, it talks about husbands, wives, children, right? But it starts off talking about the body, the church body. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for you, for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. And then verses 18 through 21. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And then, like I said, then it goes on to talk about wives, husbands, children, right? But it's talking about the church there. Sacrificial love. We are commanded, called, to give up of ourselves. To whom? Who are we giving ourselves up to? To one another. To one another. You notice that phrase repeating itself in some of these verses and these commands is telling us whatever the command is, to one another. Love one another. What about in First John? First John chapter four seven to eleven. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love God does not know God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this the love of God was manifest in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. And 20 and 21 says, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the love, the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that, we, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. And where it says, cannot love God who he hasn't seen, but uh, if he doesn't love the brother who he has seen, also, I want to point out this is before Zoom, right? <laughs> this would this would assume some proximity. Okay? This type of love requires togetherness, face to face, personal togetherness. I have a list. I've been carrying it around and I have it in my Bible. I've used it a number of times this year because of what it says and does and we've been praying for unity and through all these things that we've been going through as a church, right? There's 59, 59 one another's on that sheet right there. All commands like we've just read. To love one another. To be with each other. To care for each other. Okay? So I think the Bible is telling us that we need to run together. He's commanding us to love one another and to be together. It is impossible to love Christ, to love His bride, and to love and be part of His body by yourself. 
So did we answer our questions? Right? What does the Bible say about running the race together? And what we've seen this morning. It's God's design from beginning to end that we run the race together. And again, I want to point out there's really no end. Right? From now until all eternity. It's the design from creation through all eternity. And he showed us how it works when his people do what he says together. He's also showed us what happens when we disobey together, right? And he's told us that the smart way or the best way to run the race is together. And he's commanded us to give of ourselves and love each other as he has loved us. So I'm going to conclude with this passage here. Next week is going to be a very specific uh, application of what it means to run the race together because we're going to talk about intercessory prayer, which is praying for each other. So next week I'm going to be talking about praying for each other. But right now I want to end this with Romans chapter 12 because I think this sums it up beautifully. And also I want to point out this is Romans 12. What comes after Romans 12? Romans 13, right? Where it tells us to obey our authorities. Romans 12, 3 through 13. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, all the members do not have the same function. So we, who are many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Let love be without hypocrisy. Oh, wait, sorry, six. Since we have gifts that differ according to grace given us, each of us has to exercise them accordingly, if prophecy according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, preserving, persevering in tribulation, devoted in prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Verse 3, it says, I say to everyone among you, so everyone is involved. It's not an individual sport, not a spectator sport. Our consumerism likes to tell us, we like to say, what does this church do for me? How does, how does this church please me? How do these people please me? Or what can I get from these people? <laughs> right? That's not what we're talking about. <clears throat> Each has been given a measure of faith, it says. That's all of us. Verses 4 through 6. The parts of the body serve different functions, but we're one body. 
parts, like we were talking about in Psalm 139. Each of us is to do our job according to our gifts. And if you say, I don't have any gifts, or I don't know my gifts, every one of God's children is a gifted, essential part of the body. And if you're wondering, do something. Do anything, and you will start to see what your part is. If you continue to do nothing, you'll never find your place in the body, and you'll hurt the body, and you'll not grow with the body, like we saw in some of the scriptures we're reading. And then 6 through 8 says there's a list of skills needed by the body. Prophecy, which is proclaiming the truth. Serving, teaching, exhorting or encouraging, giving, leading, cheerful mercy. And that's just some, right? And then verses 9 through seven, or 13, it gets back to everyone. Talks about real love, hating evil, clinging to good, devoted love, preference and honor to your brothers and sisters, diligent, fervent service to God, joyful hope, perseverance in trials, taking care of each other's needs, sharing, which is hospitality, the difference between entertaining. Entertaining is I have all my stuff and I want you to see all my cool stuff. That's entertaining, right? Hospitality is it's not my stuff, right? So sharing. And this is where we want to be, right? This passage is where we want to be. And I believe we are. I believe this church is a, an example of this. I've told numerous ones of you, and I said on Wednesday night that I'm kind of preaching to the choir here because I think experientially many of you have seen this in this body and experienced it. And I believe it's true. And of course, there's room for improvement all the time, right? And God's going to continue. It talks about the body growing, right? So it's going to grow together and get stronger. And one more thing before I, before I end here. What's harder than using our God-given gifts to serve each other? Letting others help us with their gifts. What great pride we have to think that we can do everything by ourselves or that by ourselves we can have enough to be self-sufficient. John Calvin says this way, <clears throat> Everyone desires to have so much himself so as to not need help from others. But the bond of mutual communication, and that's not just talking on the phone communication, that means communing together, of mutual being togetherness. Mutual communication is this, that no one has sufficient for himself, but is constrained to borrow from others. I admit then that the society of the godly, that's like our society of the passion, right? The society of the godly cannot exist except when each one is content with his own measure and in to others the gifts which he has received and allows himself by turns to be assisted by the gifts of others. Right? Very un-American thing. <laughs> so can we love each other with true sacrificial agape love the way Christ loved us? And can we allow ourselves to be loved? Remembering our place humbly and letting others have their place in the body? And most importantly, can we love God above all? Richard Baxter, from that book I showed you, and it was also in the Puritan quote book that Matt gave me, the same quote, says it this way. He pardoned thy sin and took thee into his favor and adopted thee for his son and an heir of heaven. He will glorify thee with angels in the presence of his glory. 
how should such a friend be loved? How far above all mortal friends? Their love and friendship is but a token and a message of his love. He sendeth thee kindness and mercy by thy friend. And when their kindness ceaseth, or can do thee no good, his kindness will continue and comfort thee forever. Love them, therefore, as the messengers of his love, but love him in them, and love them for him, and love him much more. Let us run with endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for giving us your word. Lord God, for designing a human body, for making us, creating us, and Lord, for giving us a picture of what your body is to look like and to be like. And Lord, grant us that type of closeness, that type of love, that type of encouraging each other, being there for each other, crying when there's tears and laughing when there's praises and being together for you, for your sake as our head. So Lord, we we bless you. Thank you. And thank you, Lord, now that we get to come before your table and celebrate your body. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.